following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. I just wanted to start today with a, um, a small confession. Um, I secretly love superhero movies, I guess not so secret anymore, um, especially Batman. So uh, I think Batman's what every young boy and secretly every man wants to be. By day, he's the, uh, the rich billionaire running a successful company in a fancy suit. By night, he's the superhero fighting crime in a fancy car. Who wouldn't want to be that? Now, my favorite Batman movie of all time was The Dark Knight. It's uh, the one where Heath Ledger plays the Joker. You might have seen it. Now, uh, for those who don't know, the Joker is the uh, psychopathic maniac bent on destroying Gotham City. And batmans uh, he's Batman's nemesis, the one Batman is trying to stop. Uh, the one Alfred says, uh, just wants to watch the world burn. Um, but sadly, Heath Ledger died quite shortly after the movie was finished of a drug overdose. And uh, when any celebrity dies, there's, uh, the media has a field day. Now, there's just rumors and speculation and all sorts of conspiracy theories that come out. And one particular rumor got my attention. Some people thought that Heath Ledger had crossed over from playing the part of the Joker to truly believing he was the Joker. Hmm. Now, when you start going down that road and you think about it, you think, well, okay, he might have been going a little bit more insane in his head each day. You know, they must have looked through his interviews and thought, yeah, yeah, it's really good playing this role as the Joker. I can see it in my own life. And, um, and it eventually, it probably would have driven him mad. He would have started going a bit crazy, needing to take drugs to silence the madness in his head. Um, he might have needed more and more drugs to get rid of the voices. And then eventually he probably needed so much one day that he overdosed. It's a possible situation. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, sounds like a rumor. But what really stood out to me was that, you know, there's really no way of disproving that, that rumor. We'll never know what went on inside his head. We can't really prove it or disprove it. It's just one of those conspiracy theories that just forms kind of the backdrop of his death now. But it got me thinking, you know, if you don't know the full story of what's going on, it's easy to just fill in the blanks with what we think happened. And that's often what we do with the story here. We make the Samaritan woman the center of the story and we fill in the blanks about her life. We actually know very little about her. She was a woman. She was a Samaritan. She was thirsty and she needed water. Yes, like everyone else. Uh, she had been married five times, and she was living with someone who wasn't her husband. That's it. But that really hasn't stopped a lot of people from inventing detailed backstories about her life. Uh, let's try this one. Okay, maybe her first marriage was an arranged marriage. To her husband, it was a business transaction. He was cold, he was distant. Um, he didn't love her. Now, she desperately wanted love. So in her desperation, she found it in the arms of another man and was unfaithful. And when her husband found out, he was humiliated and he divorced her. So she was desperate, she was alone, she was a woman in a society dominated by men, shamed by divorce, and she went to the first man who would take her in. But again, she chose poorly, and this man was worse than the first. So she sought comfort in the arms of her husband's servant. Okay. But then when her husband found out, he divorced her again, and she's back to the same cycle. Desperate, alone, feeling the pangs of loneliness and depression, she said to herself, after the third time, this is going to be the last time. I'll never have this happen again. But it was like a broken record playing on and on and on again. 
She was trapped in one lonely marriage after another until her fifth marriage ended in divorce. And then she really had nowhere to go. There were no more caring servants. There were no more young suitors. Nowhere for her to go. She felt like old, damaged goods. Then she met a man who said, look, I'm not going to marry you. You're too old for that. You're not going to give me any children. But I'll take you in if you be my mistress. Now, it wasn't marriage, but it's better than living on the streets. And she had to eat. We know that most women collected water from the well in the town early in the morning. They did so because it's easier to keep water cooler for longer. So you go early in the morning or late evening. If you go at midday, you're going to avoid people. Because that's when lots of people, that's when there'll be no one around. She wanted to avoid those judgmental stares, the awkward silences. She didn't want to be the topic of conversation around town. So she found it easier just to avoid people altogether. She had suffered in silence and in loneliness for years. And then when Jesus spoke to her, her guard was up. She didn't want any trouble. She didn't want word getting out that she was talking to the new single good-looking man in town. Because if that got out, her boyfriend would just kick her out. And then she'd really, really have nowhere to go. Possible situation number one. Maybe I've got it completely wrong. Maybe it was just the opposite. Maybe she went to town, to the well, at midday, so she could avoid people, because that's where she'd pick off her next victim. Completely different start. Okay, she always married the richest and most naive man she could find. She convinced him to let her manage his household, which then became managing his finances, which she then used his good name to take out enormous loans, pocketed the cash, and when her husband found out, it was too late. Why? They had two choices, really. They could take her to the authorities and say, this woman has used my good name to get loans. But they're on the verge of bankruptcy. They can't pay the loans back. They're not going to get forgiveness for loans. No way. So they've got the shame of bankruptcy, the shame of a failed marriage, and the shame of being played for a fool. Who on earth is ever going to do business with such a fool again? You'd never trust them. The other choice they had was to leave town, quietly divorce her, and start again. And most of her husbands were smart enough to know that that's the only option they really had. She wasn't the victim of a cruel and repressive male-dominated society. She was a villain. She hated that men had all the power in society, and this was her way of fighting the powers, fighting the system. She was a feminist before her time. She was a hero, a Robin Hood, if you will, stealing from the rich and giving to the people who had been made richer by other rich people. Her conversation with Jesus wasn't her having her guard up. It was a playful flirtation. She's testing Jesus out to see if he's, he's suitable to be her next victim. Can you see how easy it is just to fill in the blanks and spin the story any way you want? Any one of those stories could be true. Or none of them could be true. We'll never know. But they're both dead ends. Because we've made the Samaritan woman the, the center of the story for so long. But I don't think she is. And it's not that she's unimportant or doesn't have value as a woman or anything like that. It's just that Jesus is the center of the story. The reason I say it's a dead end is because if you start with Samaritan woman and you make her the center, you end up with a very strange Jesus at the end. Okay? Take, take the root of her being a, a victim of a cruel and repressive male-dominated society. 
you end up with a Jesus who was one who just championed women's rights, spoke out against social taboos, particularly now in Western world, spoke out against religion, spoke out against the religious patriarchy that kept women enslaved. Jesus was a revolutionary, liberal, secular modernist all before his time. He's not the son of God, not God in the flesh. He's just a great moral example of someone who holds the same values we seem to hold as a society right now. What a coincidence. Just reminds me of the story, um, Christian writer Adrian Plassey writes the story in his book, Bacon Sandwiches and Salvation. He tells the story of a woman who uh, was sitting in the back of church one day and she didn't like the music. And uh, for her, she just didn't like anything modern. It was like, you know, drums and guitar and it was just too loud. And a friend turned to her at the end of the services and said, uh, what did you think of the music? And she said, I'll tell you what I thought. You know, when someone says that, they're not particularly happy. She said, if Jesus had been here today, he'd have turned in his grave. <laughs> Sadly, that is all Jesus is to some people, a great moral example. Now, she, that was an, an adventure in missing the point, really, because Jesus was there that Sunday. He wasn't in his grave, and for all she knew, he could have enjoyed the music. So what's going on with this passage? We know that John's gospel from start to finish is a story of new creation and it's a story tightly wrapped around the person of Jesus because he's the one that brings the new creation. He's God in the flesh, the embodied presence of God, or as John put it, the word made flesh who has made his dwelling among us. And this story is all about the new creation that Jesus is bringing. That's why I've called it new creation conversation today. The first thing I want to note um, from the story is that new creation is all of God, all of grace. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks of this well will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I give them will never thirst. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus didn't wait for her to speak. He didn't wait for his disciples to come back to look after him. He initiated the conversation. He spoke first. And this wasn't Jesus just breaking some social taboo. He spoke first because God spoke first and created the world, created the earth, created the, the world. And as Jesus is the word of God, the one who was with God and the one who is God, the one through whom God created the world, he spoke first because he was bringing new creation to this woman's life. At first, she had no idea what he was offering. She didn't understand. She thought it was some kind of miracle cure that might stop her from having to go to the well every day, help her avoid the place. She'd be able to just carry on with her life as it was, but instead now she might have something to brag about, elevate her above the other woman. She'd be a little bit more special. Yet what Jesus was offering was new life, a whole new way of being human. The direct translation of the words living water simply means running water, water that isn't still. Now Jesus looked at her life and said, and saw that it was like a stagnant cesspool of dirty water. It's undrinkable, it's toxic, and what she needed was to be connected to a spring of fresh water that would come and clean out the dirty water. She couldn't do that on her own. She didn't need another moral lesson. She didn't need another disapproving look or a judgmental stare. I'm pretty sure she knew exactly how far wrong her life was but what she needed was grace, mercy, and new life. 
She had a spiritual thirst she was trying to quench with men and marriage. Now, whether you take the root of her being the victim or the villain, whether she's trying to climb the social ladder or whether she's the one being repressed, she was using marriage as a means to an end. And before she had a chance to ask for forgiveness, before she had a chance to even clean up her life or even realize that there is another way, Jesus offered her the transformative gift of God's grace, leading to eternal life. She wasn't searching for God. She wasn't like Martin Luther asking, how can I find a good God to appease my conscience? She was about as far from God as you can get. New creation, it's all by God's action in Jesus. We contribute nothing. God does everything. It's all of grace. We do nothing to earn it. We have no claim of entitlement on it. We simply accept it and are transformed by it. I find in my own life that I'm, I'm pretty harsh on people sometimes. I'm, I'm harsh on people that have made bad choices, whether that be a, a moral choice, um, a money choice, um, if people have made bad friend choices, or they've chosen at, at stages of life to do things that I wouldn't, wouldn't have thought would be good or smart. And I'm, I'm pretty harsh on people like that sometimes, I find. And if you're honest, I'm sure some of you are too, but please be fair with me. Um, be gracious with me because I'm learning and I'm on the journey too. When bad things happen to people, one of my first thoughts is, well, I guess you kind of got what you deserved because that's where your life was hidden. You, know, you made the choices, no one to blame but yourself. But in this passage, I kind of find a different attitude in Jesus. And I, I've, as I've prepared, I found myself rebuked and convicted by my own attitude here yeah, and changed. Because when Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, I'd argue he's already thinking way ahead to the cross. The word gift in Greek is doreia. It's a gift that is all of grace, is something you don't deserve or are not entitled to. That's one part of the meaning. But it's another part of the, it's a, it's a word you use specifically when you want to say the gift is great, majestic, and lavish. It's not just a small token gift, it's a great and majestic gift. That's the word you use. And that's exactly what the cross is. It's the great and majestic gift of God to a fallen and broken world. That's where Jesus took on our sin, our depravity, our brokenness. Everything that kept us from being fully human was nailed to that cross and it died with Christ. Jesus took on himself the full punishment for our rebellion against God, all so that we could be made new. The cross is God's way of bringing new creation to a world that desperately needs it. Isaiah 53, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The cross, it's God's way of bringing new creation. A few weeks ago, um, you might have seen in the news that um, a staff member that worked for the business I worked for was um, murdered. And uh, it wasn't a direct staff member of mine, but someone I did manage from time to time. And uh, you might have seen it on TV or in the papers and all that. And uh, it was a very difficult time in the office. Um, very, very hard to be just with that front and center all the time. Um, she was really well loved in the office. She'd been there about 10 years. Everybody knew her. Everybody knew her well. And it was a shock. Um, and the worst was that we, we didn't know anything more than that was what in the papers at any time. You know, we were just sitting there on the Herald all the time, just hitting refresh to see if we could find it anymore. But um, when I read in the papers that the police had actually arrested someone, I was, I was quite relieved. 
Because, you know, cases like this can just drag on for years, and they can go unsolved, and you just never know what's going to happen. Um, but when, when they'd announced that in the papers, I just found myself getting so angry. I was so angry with this guy for what he did. Well, they allegedly said he did. I'm innocent until proven guilty, I guess. Um, and if you'd asked me at the time, regardless of whether I thought he was innocent or guilty, I would have supported a lynch mob. I was ready to get out there with a club or a baseball bat and just you know, give him a piece of my mind or a piece of my bat. And, but as my anger peaked, I think after two days of just feeling that, after, after it really peaked, I just felt God say to me, I died for his sins too. And that wasn't an audible voice. That was just a still, small thought one day that came in. And it just completely disarmed my anger. Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be any justice in this world. I'm not saying he should get off scot-free or there should be no accountability for actions here. But at that point, I was just reminded of the depth of God's grace, not only towards me, but towards the worst of sinners. And when I thought about it, you know, according to Jesus' standards, I'm really no different to the guy. Because, you see, in my anger, I plotted his death in my heart. You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. Anyone who murders will be guilty in the courts. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be guilty before the court. It's the cross that halts our attempts at self-justification. Shows our best efforts up to be filthy rags. And as the song goes, I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I'll cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. If you knew the gift of God, the extravagant love and mercy of God, the love that reaches down and pulls sinners out of the depth of their depravity, and captivity to sin, the love that takes us from being dead in sin and transgression to alive in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. If you knew the gift of God, Jesus calls each of us to him personally. Jesus initiates the conversation with us before we've got a chance to think about it. He calls us each where we are, as we are. But he doesn't leave us there. His grace takes us onwards, upwards. And I just get the sense today that there'll be a few of us here who need to know again the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God, do you know the gift of God today? Is God an angry referee ready to blow you up for the slightest infraction? Do you know the gift and grace and love of God today? So, new creation, it's all of God. It's all of grace. The second thing I want to note about this story is that it's more than just personal salvation. It's the redemption, renewal of the cosmos, of all creation, is what new creation is all about. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Said the woman to Jesus. Sharp Jewish mind probably would have responded with, well, are you greater than our father Abraham? Jews and Samaritans, boy, do they have a long, complicated history. Now, Samaritans were the, the people who stayed behind in Israel when they were two separate countries and after Assyria had invaded and conquered Israel in the north. They were the people that remained. What the Assyrians did was actually quite smart. They came in, they conquered, they took all the influential people back to their own home country and then they imported some of their own people. So not only were the Samaritans the ones left behind after the, after the rubble, but they were the ones that intermarried with the Assyrians. 
And then they slowly started to adopt all their customs and practices or kind of mix their own in together with them. So then they had their own rival temple in Samaria to the one in Jerusalem. They had uh, their own Bible, which they only stopped at, uh, stopped at Deuteronomy. So they rejected everything past Deuteronomy there. Uh, probably because of all the references to Jerusalem and the temple and the Psalms. And really what this Samaritan woman in the story was expecting was Jesus to debate with her, to argue with her, to try and prove some points. And when you boil it down, the biggest point that you can have between Samaritans and Jews was who has the right to be called the people of God? Who has the right to say we are God's children, the heirs to God's promise? And Jesus doesn't even bother taking debate. Because he's the one renewing and recreating God's people. You know, the patriarchs, the Torah, the temple, they were no longer the badges of membership in God's family. It's not that they weren't important or didn't have a place. It's just that they'd run their course. Ultimately, everything in God's story points us to Jesus. The problem was that the Jews and the Samaritans alike had both turned these things into the end goal. Now, if the debate was over the extent and fulfillment of the law and the interpretation of how the books would go and where it should be, the answer is Jesus. He's the goal of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. It's not that the law is a bad thing or an unnecessary part in God's plan. It's that the law pointed forward to Jesus. It was God's plan to write the law on our hearts through our dying and rising with Christ, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That which the Torah wanted to do was to give life, but it couldn't because of the power of sin. Yet through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the law is fulfilled, and through our faith in Christ, it is fulfilled in us too. If the debate was over the temple and which temple was the true temple, the answer is Jesus. (laughs) Okay, 10 points to that man. The temple was the locus of God's presence with his people, with Israel. And if you know something about the temple, when Solomon first built the temple, God's presence came down on it like a cloud of glory, similar to Mount Sinai. When that temple was destroyed and it was rebuilt again, no cloud, no presence, no filling. That's why Malachi, in the last book of the Old Testament, he calls the priests out for acting corruptly because they're acting as if God was not going to come back. I'm not going to come back and fill the temple. But John tells us that in Jesus, God has come back to live with his people. He's the word made flesh, the one who's made his dwelling with us, literally tabernacled with us. We've heard it before that the tabernacle was the tent of meeting, where God lived with the Israelites in the desert. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the the embodied presence of God. He's the return of God to live with his people. And I find it really interesting that God chose not to descend on the second temple again, fill it with a cloud of glory. God chose to come back to his people, to return to his people in a man. Now, if ever there was a statement God wanted to make about the end of the temple, about a new age coming, he did it in Jesus. In fact, if you look at it that way, In light of Jesus, the whole world is God's temple, his place of dwelling. If ever there was a statement God wanted to make about the good and God-givenness of creation, of the created order, he did it in Jesus as a man, as a created being, as a human. The most powerful affirmation of the goodness and God-givenness of creation is Jesus. 
the incarnate Messiah, the resurrected Messiah, the one in whom God is redeeming and restoring and renewing all things, all of creation. It's not just about you and me being saved personally and having a peace in our hearts or having our sins forgiven. It's about the redemption and renewal of the cosmos, of everything. It's not about us being whisked off to heaven, to a life of disembodied immortality while we float on a cloud with some harps while the earth burns away. It's about the redemption and renewal of the cosmos, of the earth. And I guess that means, you know, being a Christian and caring for the environment shouldn't be opposites. In fact, I guess as Christians, we have even more reason than most to care for the environment. It's not that we're hippies who hug trees. It's that this world belongs to God. The physical world matters to God. You and I matter to God, not just our hearts and our minds, but our physical bodies as well. The physical world matters to God. God will redeem and restore this world. Behold, I make all things new, not all new things. That means caring for the poor, working to alleviate poverty is not a waste of time as a Christian. We're not here to sit as a holy huddle, us four and no more, while we wait to go to heaven. It means working for a more fair and a more just society is partnering with God in his work of new creation. Caring for the poor is to partner with God in his work of new creation. Caring for the environment is partnering with God in his, new, his work of new creation. Not that we ultimately bring it, that's God's job, but we partner with him. We embody what God is doing in this world. We anticipate what God will one day do for the whole world through our work. I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who, who used to come to my youth group um, when I was growing up, and you could tell that he never really gave his life to Jesus at that youth group. He had a few good experiences, but it just it never really clicked for him. Something just didn't happen. And then he had a really hard life after that. His parents split up, his, his brother died young, and he had a real tough time. So I understand now why he's a pretty angry atheist. And he said to me, you know, I think eternal life is a dangerous concept for society. I said, really? Well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, look, if all people do is they're happy just to go to heaven when they die, they don't care about the world. They're quite happy to let injustice rule. They're quite happy to let dictators stay in place. They're quite happy to let companies completely destroy and degrade the environment. They don't care about poverty. It's a dangerous concept for society. It's damaging to people's lives. He didn't have an answer for me when I said to him, that's not what being a Christian is about. That following Jesus means that one day God will make all things new. That one day God will put this world back together again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You've got eternal life right there with God's care for his project of the world, for his, for his concern for creation, all in one statement. So, new creation, uh, it's all of God, all of grace. It's cosmic in its scope. It's not just personal new creation. And lastly, Jesus focuses in on the life of new creation, which is worship. So Jesus doesn't define worship in this passage as much as we'd like him to. He has to say that uh, worship isn't going to be restricted to any sort of geographical location, which is good, and that it will be done in spirit and in truth. Now, in the story just before this in John, John has said 
that that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. So when we think about that, for us to worship God, we must be born anew by the Spirit. We must be made new by the Spirit. We must be given new life to be able to worship God. So in other words, worshiping God is an act of God's grace first. It's all of God. It's God doing something for us, and it's our response to what God has already done. And as such, that makes us a part of God's new creation. Our whole lives then become acts of worship to God, because God's always with us. God's always present in us. There's never a time when God is far from us, no matter how it may feel. We always have the Holy Spirit living in us. And worship is also in truth. It means, I take that to mean that worship is Christ-centered because although the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Worship is Christ-centered. So if worship is Christ-centered, if worship is an act of God's grace, it means that it's both cross-shaped and resurrection-shaped. What do I mean by that? Well, I have a one-year-old son, and I can't really see him anywhere right now. But I've got great plans for this little man. Um, I guess if you're a parent, you probably have the same for all your children. Um, I want him to be a, a great blues guitarist, like his old man. Shameless self-promotion there. Um, I want him to get straight A's in school. Um, I don't ever want him to get into trouble. I want him to build tree houses. I want him to enjoy blowing things up with fireworks like I do still. Um, I want him to play cricket and rugby. I want him to be a really social guy and have lots of friends, you know, ha always having his friends over at our house. Um, hopefully he'll clean up the mess after them. And we all have plans for our, for our kids. We all have plans for our lives. We all have, we have plans. But you know, my son may not love any of my plans. He may hate them all. Um, he may hate music. Oh, what kind of a person hates music? Oh, really? He may never play sports, sad as that would be. He may not even be a social guy. He might be quiet and withdrawn. He may be the polar opposite of me. God forbid he could go totally wild and rebellious and become the prodigal son. I pray that never happens to him. Now I can teach him, I can train him, I can show him all sorts of things. I can raise him in the church. I can love him unconditionally as Christ loved me. But just as Adam and Eve rejected God's love and rule and authority, my son could turn around and reject everything I've done for him. And then what on earth could I do? Those of you who are parents will know that there is no greater feeling of responsibility coupled with helplessness that comes with being a parent. And I've only got a one-year-old son. Some of you are looking at me going, just you wait, just you wait. You haven't even hit the terrible twos yet. What about the teens? You got no idea, buddy. That's where I felt God say to me that my worship of God is ultimately cross-shaped. It's shaped like the cross. Because that's where I hand my son over to God. It's where I pray, I lift him up, and I give him to the Lord, and I say, Lord, ultimately, your will be done in my son's life. This is where we hand our problems over to God. We hand our issues, we hand our lives, everything in us, and we say to God, your will be done, not mine. 
It's not that that absolves me of any fatherly responsibility towards my son. It's not that I won't stop trying to teach and train him and correct and rebuke and help him grow and discipline him. It's just that I'm prepared to die to my agendas, to my desires and my hopes and my dreams, all so that God's will will be done in my son's life, all so that he will come to know Christ and that God would make him the person he is. Also, that God would make me the person He would have me be, that God would have me live the life He would have me be, that God's will would be done in my son's life. I can't see beyond myself so often. I'm so focused on myself so times. I'm going to unashamedly apologize and ask for your grace and mercy and repent before the Lord of my selfishness all the time. But, you know, that's why worship is so important. That's why Jesus brings this whole thing down to the life of new creation. And the life of new creation is a life of worship. It's a life that, is, that lifts our gaze off ourselves and onto Christ, our Savior. We are not our own saviors. It lifts us onto God, who's the one who brings new creation. We are so far gone before Christ, we can do nothing to save ourselves. We cannot lift a finger to save ourselves. Why? Because Paul says we are dead in our sins and transgressions. Dead people don't respond to anything. If you've tried preaching to gravestones, that's what it's like. That's what it's like before Christ. You're as as dead as that person in the ground. That's why it's new creation. That's why salvation is new life. That's why it's being born again. It's absolutely new life out of death. That's why worship is so important. It focuses us on the one who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that's why worship as well is not just cross-shaped. It's not a, a total life of permanent sacrifice. Sometimes I guess we get hung up on having to beat ourselves up as Christians and constantly make sure we're sacrificing and everything's got to be about sacrifice. Yes, there's an element of that in Christianity, but it's resurrection-shaped as well. Jesus stepped out of the grave. He didn't stay in there. We serve the God who makes all things new. He brings life out of death, new creation out of nothing. God who saves sinners to the uttermost who holds us in the palm of his hand and nothing can snatch us away, not even yourself. We serve the God who is sovereign over everything. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without the Father knowing. And if a sparrow is sold for a penny in the market, says Jesus, how much more does your heavenly Father care for you? We serve the God who stands at the close of history and says, behold, I make all things new. One day Jesus will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering or heartache. We worship the God of all life through Jesus who came to give eternal life by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit so that in us the life of heaven may be brought to earth. Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you abound in the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.